0: This is Gulf Coast Life. I'm Mike Canary. Thanks for joining us. Russia's war on Ukraine has caused massive disruption in the country, and while actual numbers are impossible to know, Western intelligence agencies recently estimated that more than 100,000 Ukrainian troops have been killed or wounded, and the official Ukrainian civilian death toll is at least 8,000, though many suspect those numbers are actually higher. As many as 200,000 Russian soldiers have been killed or wounded since the war began. More than 14 million million Ukrainians have fled their homes and as many as one million Russians have left their country. And since the war began, an estimated 20,000 Russians have been arrested for protesting the war while their country's economy suffers. Today, we get a sense of how Russia's war on Ukraine is impacting Russian people with Dr. Catherine Stoner. She's a senior fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies and Mossbacher, director of the Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law, both at Stanford University. Dr. Stoner was on campus last week giving a talk called Making Autocracy Worse, How Putin's War in Ukraine Has Ruined 30 Years of Reform in Russia. So we brought her by the studio to chat. Let's hear that now. Dr. Stoner, welcome to the show. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much for having me. So I was reading up and looking at when you got your degrees. And so what I want to know is, is does your focus on Russia or has your focus on Russia – um, been around since you were in college, in your undergrad.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I uh, I grew up in, in Canada, and so I went to uh, the University of Toronto uh, undergrad. Used to come to Sanibel Island, as I mentioned to you earlier, Mike, um, for a vacation with my, with my family for a number of years. But when I started at University of Toronto, it was um, – uh, well, this will – you'll be able to tell my age right away, unfortunately, but um, 1984, September 1984 – and um, in January of 1985, I started a, a really interesting class on what was Soviet politics. And in March of, of that year, while I was taking that class, um, Mikhail Gorbachev became General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and started to talk about how the system needed to be reformed. And so I've been hooked really ever since.
0: And then uh, the Berlin Wall came down, which is sort of the marked marked the collapse of the Soviet Union when you were in your master's program.
1: Yeah, so Berlin Wall came down in 1989. So that's the end of communism in Eastern Europe. Um, And then the Soviet Union collapsed in in December of 91. So at at that point, I had started my, my PhD in Actually, those of us who were in graduate school then had to um, move quickly, let me say, to find different topics. I was going to study uh, regional party organizations in uh, the Soviet Union for my uh, doctoral dissertation and... The Communist Party of the Soviet Union collapsed, of course, with the Soviet Union in December of 1991, and, and so I ended up writing about regional government.
0: Um, when was the last time you've been? You went to Russia. I'm, a, uh, I'm, I'm going out on a limb here, assuming you've been to Russia before.
1: I've been to Russia many, many times. I, I should say I'm now banned um, from uh, Russia. I am. I'm on the banned list. There are about 1,200 of us. Um, I'm not exactly sure why, but I can talk about that if you want. Um, I was banned last June, uh, so I can't get a visa. But the last time I was there was about, well, just before the pandemic. Yeah, three or four years ago. Yeah. Um, do you have any three expectation
0: at this point of going back someday? I know well, kind of. That's a that's an open-ended question based on the, what we'll talk about next. But right. what are your thoughts right now?
1: Uh, well, I love going there. Uh, it's a fascinating country. So I hope so. But um, being on the on the banned list means I I can't get a visa to go. Um, so I think as long as um, we have our very extensive sanctions regime on Russia over Ukraine. Um, and I'm told probably as long as, as Mr. Putin is president, things will, will not change much for people who are on the ban list.
0: That's uh, A lot's gonna have to change in other words. Unfortunately, Um yeah. Were you surprised when what some were thinking was a bluff turned out to be the truth that they were going to, that Russia was going to fully invade Ukraine? Were you surprised by that turn of events? So um,
1: I was unsure. Um, by about December of 2021 about whether or not they would go in, but by early to mid-January it was pretty certain that they would go in um, because you can't have you know 130, 140,000 troops amassed on the Ukrainian-Russian or Belarusian-Ukrainian borders in December, January, February without either going in or withdrawing, and uh, although we were told they were withdrawing, we saw no evidence of that from from satellites, and so it became pretty clear, I think, by mid-January what was going to happen, Um, although I must say I have have a number of friends um, who are former Ukrainian government officials. Who were pretty certain he wouldn't um, wouldn't pull the trigger. That is, uh, that is, uh, Mr. Putin, and they were genuinely surprised. Um, and I think we had some trouble convincing even even President Zelensky that this was for real for a while. That is, we being the U.S. government. Do you have
0: friends in Russia?
1: Uh, very many, yes. Unfortunately, some are in jail right now, um, and some have had to leave the country. But I still have some there. Yeah.
0: Are you able to stay in touch with them?
1: You know, I since I was banned, um, I have been very circumspect in emailing them um, because I wouldn't want to put have have any sort of negative reflection that for some reason is coming from an association with me um, put onto them. It, it's um, it's a it's a very bad time. Um, you know, as I you asked me when I started studying the Soviet Union, it was 1985. Here we are now, you know, 33 years later. And so the the span of my interest in, in this part of the world has has followed a, a political and economic liberalization, um, not quite to a consolidated democracy at the end of the 1990s, to a, a re-autocratization and, and really deep autocracy. And so you know, I didn't used to worry for my friends in the '90s and and the two well until about five years ago, um, and now I now I do and and have very good reason to. It's a very it's become a very repressive autocracy in the last year, and that's what I'm actually going to talk about uh, tomorrow night.
0: Uh, So I read your article. It's called The War in Ukraine, How Putin's War in Ukraine Has Ruined Russia. It Mm -hmm. was published in the Journal of Democracy in July of 2022, which was about five months after the invasion. Now it's about eight months since you wrote that. Mm -hmm. Um, And that article back then paints a really downright dire picture for Russia's economy and society because of the invasion. Um, Before we go over some of the things that you highlight in that article, how much worse would you say things have gotten within Russia? since you wrote that article?
1: So the economy didn't decline as much as we expected. So I, I think that probably you're the I think I probably wrote that in May, April or May, although it came out in June or July. So, um, but it has declined markedly. Um, it is Russia's in, in recession now. It's now running budget deficits. Um, more than 13 months ago, it had been growing, um, and had budget surpluses. You know, the car market, if you take that as an indicator of consumers' abilities to to buy things, has declined something like 65 percent um, the um, you know growth is estimated for 2023 of, of maybe 003 percent. so it's bad economically um, the inflation rate last year on an annualized basis was about 13 and a half percent there's hidden unemployment um, so they, people aren't effectively fired from their jobs but they' they're almost certainly not getting paid or not getting paid the full amount. And, you know, before the war began, uh, incomes were flat uh, year on year, real incomes. So things have gotten a lot worse. Um, if people tell you sanctions don't work, they are working. They are not working, you know, as, as well, arguably, as we would want if, if the goal was to stop this action in Ukraine. But if the goal was to inflict pain on the Russian economy, well, that's happened. And uh, there's, a, there's a very clear correlation there with sanctions and, and how that's going.
0: Um, the article begins by summarizing sort of how relatively well Russia had done maybe in fits and starts over the 30 years or 25 years. Can you just kind of mm-hmm. summarize that for our listeners? You, t- you touched on it before when mm-hmm. you said your friends and it used to be a different situation, but can you just touch on the progress that had been made You know, up till whenever that progress stopped being made, maybe five, eight years ago, something like that. Yeah. So
1: I I, I would say that um, that economically the progress was was ongoing um, until the start of the pandemic, certainly in fits and starts. Um, But, you know, the 1990s was a really difficult time uh, because um, it was effectively a triple Transition, political, economic, and social. And President Yeltsin, who was Russia's first elected president, had a really full policy agenda. He had to take the economy of a country that spans 11 time zones um, and had 146 million people at the time and um, turn it into a market economy from a planned economy where the state owned everything. So, privatization, create a banking system, create a real estate market, create a stock market. Um, create systems of property rights, and then create um, a system of political accountability, so uh, elections, and the supporting organizations like a free judiciary and um, uh, parliaments, and, and then a social transition, right? Um, Russian people who grew up under the Soviet system were not accustomed to having to find a job somewhere. The state decided that, they weren't accustomed to being unemployed. Um, the state had a had a very robust, although not always, high-quality um, system of, of public care, from educational systems to you know, health care. And so weaning people off that dependency on the state was difficult. And the privatization process, in order to get it done quickly, created huge wealth inequalities. And so people came to associate the 1990s with disorder. And democracy, therefore, also with disorder and hardship. And so, when you had Putin come in in 2000 as Russia's president, they wanted stability, and he can brought that message, and didn't crack down necessarily on you know markets or consumerism. He didn't start out as being anti-Western. In fact, he was, uh, we think, the first uh, uh, international leader to call George Bush after 9/11 to express condolences. Um, and it really wasn't until about 2007 or so that we begin to hear him articulate negative messages. Uh, it starts at the Munich Security Conference in, in the winter of 2007 about the West, and, and in part comes from our engagement in Iraq and a little bit in Afghanistan, but really in Iraq. But then in the, between 2008 and 2012, Putin steps into the prime ministership. Um, his protege, Dmitry Medvedev, his president— And we have a reset in Russian-U.S. relations um, between Medvedev and Obama. Um, We create a northern distribution network where we're actually moving NATO materials, uh, military materials, through Russia on trains um, to support troops in Afghanistan. Um, Signed, you know, the the New START Treaty to control uh, nuclear arms. Russia's economy grew between 2003 and 2008. 7% Seven percent year on year. People's real incomes tripled. Um, there was, you know, a fair amount of Western investment, especially actually from Germany, big investor, far bigger than than American companies. And you know, we cooperated on the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. Cooperated over some aspects of, of Syria before twenty fifteen, um, and. Um, we never heard from Putin. I know from friends of mine who served in the in the U.S. government at the time, um, and and certainly I, in my exposure to him, which which uh, has been through um, some attendance at the, at the this conference that he holds annually for specialists in the area, n- had never heard that Crimea was a problem. Um, Crimea has been part of sovereign Ukraine since 1991. So it really wasn't until 2012, when he comes back into the presidency, that relations between the U.S., pardon <clears throat> me, and Russia begin to deteriorate. And that's the end of the reset. And um, Russia's economy begins to stagnate um, as oil prices sort of stabilize. And this turns out to be sort of a, a corrupt, cronyistic Regime that is uh, using, you know, people people get into government positions, be, uh, high government positions, because of some link to him, and the state is viewed as, uh, you know, something to control for personal or private gain, and then we see, begin to see a real crack cracks down crackdowns <laughs> on the uh, on the Russian opposition after uh, about. 2012
0: 2013 the cronyism and the corruption is the when he came back in 2012 through now is that a different breed of that I mean is it has it always been there but suddenly it's it's become a different tone I mean I'm just trying to figure out you know I I, from the layman's standpoint from where Mm -hmm. I am it seems like that's always been there but Mm -hmm. is there a new version of that that's been around more recently
1: I think it deepened over um, Putin's years in office. It's now been 23 years. And even though he stepped sideways to be prime minister between 2008 and 12, you know, in retrospect, we, we can see he was in control then. And certainly there is a tradition um, there as there, there is in many parts of the world um, of, of using public assets for private gain. And that is the epitome of corruption. In many countries, um, there are strong legal um, institutions in place to prevent that and a strong media that can report on that. Um, In Russia, there are not strong legal institutions. and, And the media has, that was actually one of the first things that Putin began to pull back when he first came into office in the early 2000s. Yeah.
0: I'd like to take a moment to reintroduce my guest, Dr. Catherine Stoner, is senior fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies and Mossbacher director of the Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law, both at Stanford University. She's on campus today to give a talk called Making Autocracy Worse, How Putin's War in Ukraine Has Ruined 30 Years of Reform in Russia. Her talk is part of the 2023 Florida Gulf Coast University Liebert World Affairs Lecture Series. If you'd like to engage with the show about today's topic, just find us on Facebook or on Twitter. Um, You talked some about the economic impacts of what's happened since the invasion of Ukraine. But can you talk about some of the other maybe Mm -hmm. non-fiscal things like lots of people fleeing, Mm -hmm. uh, a lot less – even less access to independent media? Can Mm -hmm. you flesh things like that out?
1: Sure. Absolutely. So, um, right. Um, The estimates are somewhere between 500,000 to a million Russians who've left since the start of the conflict – um, which was February of, of last year, 2022. Um, before that, though, um, the Anti-Corruption Foundation, which was the uh, organization led by opposition uh, figure um, Alexei Navalny, a lot of people left then um, as well. So, his, so for example, uh, his organization, when he went to jail in uh, January 2021, moved uh, outside uh, of Russia, um, some media did at that point as well, but this dramatically accelerated last year. Um, you know, this time last year, TV Rain, uh, which was an independent television station, which had been gradually curtailed over the last five or six years from broadcasting from a studio, then to an apartment. Um, then mm-hmm. they got knocked off TV, were only on YouTube, and then completely shut down. So they left. Civil society organizations, uh, including um, Memorial, which is the oldest civil society organization in, in Russia, um, and, and, you know, Gorbachev uh, supported it in 1987. It has now been completely closed. Um, so most independent Russian media, actually all of it at this point, Echo of Moscow is another one, which was a radio station, um, have have pretty much been closed and, and operate, if they operate at all, they operate from outside uh, Russia currently.
0: Uh, what about like the internet? Is it as locked down as as you might imagine? Can smart people get around it with VPNs, or is that even locked sure. down?
1: Sure, no. So you, so we did see an increase in uh, virtual private networks VPN use in the last year. Um, but um, you know, if you think of the average American, you can think of the average Russian, right? How, how many of us, especially people of a of a certain age, dare I say, mm-hmm. myself included, would think to? Get a VPN so that they could access uh, websites that they that they can't currently. So what's closed? Facebook, YouTube is not. Uh, Instagram is, Twitter is, closed uh, to Russians. Um, but yes, if you were going to get a uh, a VPN, then theoretically yes, you could you could access these things. It, it's just not everyone would think to do that or would do it. Some some of the independent media have clever ways of trying to to get access. YouTube not being closed off yet is uh, has actually been helpful to them.
0: Um, I don't know if you can really answer this or if anybody can, or maybe there's data on it, I don't know. But if you had to speculate, like what percentage of, of Russians are, are just fine and dandy with the media that they get and they don't really think, I should get a VPN and see what else is going on in the world and how many – are like this is not the f- truth. We need to find out. I mean, if you mm-hmm. had to speculate,
1: yeah. So I mean, we can we can kind of there are different ways ways of gauging that, right? So we we have um, there is one still independent um, survey agency within Russia that that conducts public opinion surveys every month on on things like Putin's popularity and also support for the Russian military in in Ukraine and. And so we've seen some fluctuation in that, not a dramatic decline. I mean, his, his reported popularity is still over 80%. And um, most people still support the military action. Um, you're not allowed to call it a war. Um, that's against the law. That'll get you in jail um, or at least a very steep fine. But there is jail time if you held up a, even a blank piece of paper implying that you are supporting the war. So um, in terms of of people thinking that maybe they're being lied to, I think the percentage is probably pretty low, and um, we do see some variation in age. So people who are 18 to 24, just like here, are much more internet savvy, uh, more likely to have a VPN. But um, what do they use that for? Uh, is it to watch Netflix? It's not necessarily, you know. Would you think to to you know read the China Daily or something like that? And, and no, right. So that said, I do, you know, I have um, some some friends and acquaintances who are are uh, members of the Russian opposition and journalists who are reporting that they're getting you know, over a million individual users or viewers of their YouTube channels, which is an alternative news source. And that's all in Russia. Still, that's a very small percentage, unfortunately.
0: Could you imagine things getting to a point in Russia where there could be like a popular uprising of some kind that would be beyond the scope of what you know the people who support Putin and Putin mm-hmm. could could handle. I mean, at this point, is N- that not right now? Not right now. No,
1: um, there are more subtle indications that all is not well. So, I said earlier, sanctions are working, and they are working in terms of, of you know, stunting the Russian economy. To be sure. Um, People who are, you know, especially young people under under thirty five, we're seeing this. Um, if you look at things like mood in some of these surveys, so if someone asked you directly in that environment, "Do you support President Putin?" the lowest cost answer is yes, right? Um, so it it uh, it's, it's a potentially very high cost if a stranger calls you and asks you about that, right? Um, so you might falsify your answer and lie. Um, there are 18 to 24-year-olds and then people even under 35 who don't falsify their answer, and it's and it's about 25 to 30%. That's not nothing, right? Now, does that necessarily lead to people going out on the streets? And here is, I think, what argues against that. One is that a lot of people have left, as I've mentioned, and most of the people that have left are in that age group. Second, the leaders that would help to break what we would call a collective action problem, right, to organize such a thing, They've, they're all in prison um, for the most part at this point or have left the country. And then third, this is a regime that also it's an informational autocracy and in that it um, controls um, the message and the narrative. And the narrative is that, you know, uh, it is us against the West, um, it's not about Ukraine, Ukraine has been co-opted, and also it's up the fear, f- fear factor, right? Um, there's a really big cost to even speaking out if you're a high school student to your future. Um, so at the moment, I think what has happened is Putin has now shown himself to be very willing to use force against his own people. We've seen 14,000 people arrested uh, in the in the first few months of the war for demonstrating. And although Russians are perfectly capable of mobilizing, the cost is really high and the benefit uh, is you know, pretty distant. Um, and so if this drags on and life becomes more uncomfortable, especially for young people who, just like our young people, were integrated into the world, they were used to having their iPhones and their iPads and traveling, coming to American universities, they'll get increasingly unhappy. So, but that may take a while longer. They're also the ones being asked to go and fight um, in this war. So if casualties get higher, there are a lot of ifs, a lot of contingencies. I wouldn't see anything in the near future, though, unfortunately.
0: All right. Well, that is unfortunately all the time we have. Dr. Catherine Stoner is senior fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies and Mossbacher director of the Center on Democracy Development and the Rule of Law, both at Stanford University, where she's also a professor of political science by courtesy, and she's a senior fellow by courtesy at the Hoover Institution. Dr. Stoner, thank you so much for spending some time.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Dr. Stoner was on campus last week giving a talk titled, Making Autocracy Worse, How Putin's War in Ukraine Has Ruined 30 Years of Reform in Russia. It was part of the 2023 Florida Gulf Coast University Liebert World Affairs Lecture Series. If you missed any of the show today, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website or wherever you find podcasts. Our show today was produced by yours truly. Our director today is Jared Gonzalez. Our social media coordinator is Tara Callaghan. For now, thank you for listening. I'm Mike Connery. This is W. GCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR for Southwest Florida.